The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Mr. Jack Gamble, who uh, says he's nobody special, but I think we're going to prove that is not the case. So, Jack, for those uh, who are not familiar with you, introduce yourself. Who are you? How'd you get involved in markets? And what exactly are you doing with your uh, YouTube channel? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Michael. I'm a big fan of your show. It's great to be here. Um, as my, my name implies, I am nobody special. Um, I, I do that on purpose. Uh, it started as kind of a kind of a joke, uh, but it's mainly meant to communicate that I don't actually have any formal background in finance. My background is mechanical engineering. That's what my degree is in. I spent 15 years working in commercial nuclear power. So I am not, as you say, a finance guy. And I know there's a lot of guys in this space that are out there exaggerating, inflating, or outright lying on their resume. So I wanted to make sure I contrasted with them as much as possible. So I just wear my lack of a qualification stamped on my forehead. Everywhere I go, I put it out there. And that's what I that's how I roll. My background, the engineering background, it's kind of helped me get into finance. I mean, I my job history is kind of all over the place. Graduated from Rowan University with a mechanical engineering degree. I did what anybody with an engineering degree would do. I went and I worked for a few years on a commercial fishing boat. I was shucking scallops on the North Atlantic in winter for a couple of years. That was the most fun I never hope I never have again. And uh, I did what every self-respecting commercial fisherman would do from there. I went to work on a nuclear reactor for 15 years. And uh, after 15 years of doing that, I had my, uh, my quintessential midlife crisis right around age 40, which happened right as the uh, unfortunate health situation of 2020 hit. So I did what any nuclear engineer would do. I became a volunteer firefighter and started a YouTube channel in finance. And that's kind of how I ended up here. I, uh, you and I are not that far off in age. Uh, I think it's interesting to hear that uh, this quintessential midlife crisis is what got you to focus more on the content side. Talk about uh, why the why the pivot? Why did you go from yeah, you know, kind of, you know, mechanical engineering and all the other things that you've done to gravitating towards this domain. So that takes me all the way back to my fishing days. I, I made a great living as a commercial fisherman. Um, it was actually a fantastic job for a guy in his 20s. I was really cash rich, was doing really well. And I bought my first home with, you know, the money I made commercial fishing. And that was in August of 2006. Whoops. And I learned really hard. It doesn't matter how hard you work which, I mean, man, that was hard work those days. I couldn't do it now. It would break me if I tried. 
Um, and it all went up in smoke in the global financial crisis. So that was a hard lesson that, you know, ignore markets, ignore finance at your peril. And so I started paying really close attention to markets, not just stocks, but the economy, finances, economic data. So I, I've always enjoyed doing that. And then in nuclear power, my, my job in nuclear power involved a lot of performance monitoring trending, which really I would sit there and I would look at pressure, flow, temperature through all these various systems at the plant. And it was my job to try to predict what was going to break before it broke based on the trends I was seeing in the performance of this equipment. And I was very good at that. So I was able to pick up on patterns, pick up on deviations. Hey, this thing is moving the responses in this direction. It's supposed to be in this direction under this circumstance. And I go figure out what's causing that. And that's actually translated pretty well into finance. And over the years, as I've developed that skill, I've become a pretty good investor, not a great investor, but a pretty good investor. But I'm really good at spotting a pattern that all kicked into high gear with repo madness in 2019. I I knew enough to know something was really off when all of a sudden on the middle of the middle of the night in September, I think it was September 17th, 2019, all of a sudden the Federal Reserve started quantitative easing again when it seemed like the economy was firing on all cylinders. And that struck me as deeply wrong. And the further I went down that rabbit hole, the more I realized, wow, something really bad is on the horizon. And uh, something really bad ended up, you know, shortly after that, we got the videos of things happening in China, people being welded inside their apartments. And, you know, I was able to realize, hey, this thing is coming. This is also going to wreak havoc on markets. And uh, from that point on, I was really just, you know, finance and economics was getting all of my attention. And then finally, last year, I just decided it was uh, it was time to make that turn. I was going to give the YouTube thing a try. I had started doing a little bit of content creation making some videos on Reddit about the silver squeeze. And those were very well received. And uh, with the encouragement over there, I decided to give it a shot. And then, you know, I mentioned the midlife crisis that hit some guys, uh, some guys go out and buy a Corvette. Some guys get a mistress. I, I became a firefighter and started a YouTube channel. That was a little more my speed. So it landed us here. The, um, so I, I, I myself grew up in the business and graduated at the finance degree and was the kid that would you know read all these books you know while everyone else was trying to play uh, sports honestly um, and you know kind of um, I have a natural skepticism around uh, the industry what were some of the things that built your own foundation in terms of understanding things so I'm with you I think actually the the analytical skill set can be very different from the knowledge right if you're very good at at sleuthing around finding clues trying to identify patterns, you can certainly apply that to investing. You still need to know something though. So what were what were some of the things that you did to just get your yourself some some foundation, some building blocks? Um I've learned a lot from other content creators. Um a lot of a lot of my influences, a guy named Joe Brown over at Heresy Financial. I've learned a lot from watching him. Listening to your show has been fantastic and the guests that you bring on, you get something different several times a day sometimes. Um, so consuming a lot of that, um, I've learned to approach traditional finance media with a large, large serving of skepticism. Um, a lot of times, a lot of what I see in financial press is people shopping their own books around or, or people advertising the other side of a trade that they're taking. So that skepticism and looking into the motivations and the interests of the people who are selling a certain narrative has helped to fill in a lot of the blanks. And then as far as some of the fundamentals, 
Um, the relationships between bond yields and prices, that was kind of a breakthrough. The, you know, the more I learned about the bond market, I think a lot of things fell into place for me. Again, not coming from the finance space. You hear about the stock market. The stock market gets all the headlines, gets all the press, but the bond market is where it happens. That is where the decisions are made and what really moves markets. And really everything just boils down to a derivative of debt in our economy at this point. And uh, yeah, those those were some of the key points for yeah, me. Yeah, and it's um, I'm glad you put the emphasis on the bond market. So uh, I keep going back to the point that the Fed doesn't own the bond market. The bond market owns the Fed, right? It's it, the the bond market is is the leader, and the Fed is ultimately following, which is amazing to me because everyone gets so obsessed around weeks like this week. You got an FOMC decision. Um, the bond market, I'd argue, has already pivoted. I mean, with the way the yields have have come off the the peak from last year. Um, what are some of the 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 parts of the bond market of the credit market that you? try to focus on? If you're going to be talking about identifying patterns, uh, what are some of the things that you're most centered on? So the 10 years, obviously the one that gets the most attention. Um, That's kind of the bellwether. So I spent a lot of time looking at the 10 year, Um, the, the yield curve itself, the inversion in the yield curve has been a pretty, pretty big one. Um, You mentioned the move in the bond market and how the bond isn't really buying what the fed is selling at the moment. You know, the long end of the yield curve is moving down. So it's the the long end, the market, the bond market is not buying this hike cycle. They're basically calling the Fed's bluff and they're saying you're you're going to start easing real soon. And, uh, you know, the Fed is selling a different story. But we'll see a couple of months from now if that continues. And, you know, maybe we get a little hint at that tomorrow or was it Wednesday? When uh, Powell talks. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a good transition to the name of the space, right? The the strong the strong jobs market lie. You did a YouTube video on this. I want you to lay it out for the audience, but I, I I'm referencing that because the reality, and I, I'm I'm with you on this idea that the jobs market probably is a lot weaker than the headlines and the media would have you believe, which is probably why the bond market has been acting the way it has, you know, off the the ten year yield peak. So lay out the thesis there. Well, why is the job market not as strong as as we're being led to believe? So there was a report was dropped last Wednesday, and it confirmed a lot of my suspicions. Uh, the report was called the I have it right here to the wrong page. The quarterly data series on business employment dynamics. It came out Wednesday at ten a.m. and to this moment, there's only one website in the world that's even mentioned this report. A website called Mishtalk. Uh, they have revised the second quarter of 2022 jobs data from what was previously reported in the monthly jobs reports as 1,121,500 jobs gained in the second quarter of last year. They went back and they revised that to negative 287,000 jobs, a swing of almost 1.4 million jobs to the downside. And This is looking back at the second quarter of 2022, which, if you recall, that is when they told us not recession because strong labor market. That's when they, Jerome Powell, started saying we are going to be aggressive with our tightening because strong labor market, the tightness in the labor market. And I, you know, on my channel, I play my strong labor market montage in a lot of my videos because just over and over again, we've been told how strong the jobs market is. But when you actually get into the data, when you dissect the data points, And you look at the trends and what they're telling us, the data is telling us the opposite of that. And, you know, this 
quarterly data series on business employment dynamics that was released to zero fanfare, despite all the talk of strong jobs that continues to this day. Turn on CNBC. You're going to hear the phrase strong labor market a few times an hour. And nobody mentions this. The labor market is not strong. And there's no shortage of data points elsewhere in some of these economic reports that'll support that also. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because um, I don't know if it's conspiratorial or not, but, you know, there clearly is a a narrative in the mainstream. You can argue in most things, right? Getting on political bent or whatever it is. Um, but it is curious to me that there isn't sort of a, an aspect of the media going back and really hitting on the revisions as much because people think it doesn't matter, but in reality, it's what frames the here and now. Absolutely. The um, what, what are some of the other aspects of, of the jobs market uh, from what you've researched that are worth paying attention to? It's more than just the idea that jobs were lost, but you know, there's always a quality aspect of the jobs that are out there. Oh yeah. Well, quality is a big one. And, uh, you know, I got to give credit to Zero Hedge. Zero Hedge has done a fantastic job uh, dissecting the actual jobs reports. And some of the numbers that they found, they've really been banging the table on this one since last summer. But really, all of the job gains, all of the strength in the labor market can be boiled down to a couple of trends. We're seeing a slight decline in full-time employment. We're seeing a huge uptick in part-time employment. And we're also seeing a large uptick in multiple job holders. And none of those data points are reflected in the headline establishment survey that comes out every month from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Now, you can see this data. If you actually pull up the BLS data, they break it into two different surveys. They'll have the establishment survey, which counts payrolls, that is jobs filled. And then you've got the household survey, which counts people filling jobs. And we've had a big deviation since last year between the number of jobs being filled and the number of people filling them. And it's been boiled down to inflation is causing, number one, a lot of people are just dropping out of the workforce, whether that's boomers retiring or young people just giving up hope, I don't know. But we are seeing people dropping out of the labor force and we're seeing the people who are staying in the labor force are taking on multiple jobs in order to make ends meet because of the cost of inflation. I mean, presumably the Fed must be aware of this, right? I mean, I can't imagine that with all their economists and all their academic credentials, right? They're not aware of some of these dynamics. Um, why do you think the Fed is, is still maybe jawboning? Um, this is the big concern, especially on FinTwit. It's like, all right, Powell's going to come out tomorrow. He's going he's gonna to hit the bulls on their head for you know rallying this year. But the reality is things have been probably a lot weaker than, than most would realize. Um, aside from the fact that last year was abnormal, the economy is just in a weird place. I mean, is the Fed purposely trying to ignore this or pretend like they are not aware of it? What are your, what's your take on that? So, you know, there's the, the simple rule of never never attribute to malfeasance something that could be easily attributed to stupidity. Um, that doesn't really work here with the Fed. Say what you want about the Fed and the central bankers. They're not stupid. So, no, I don't think this is stupidity or ignorance. Is it malfeasance? Is it you know, is it evil? I think that's also probably a little intellectually lazy to just come out and say they're bad people, although I don't think they're particularly good people. The Fed is, first and foremost, a political organization, right? Jerome Powell is a salesman. He sells a narrative when he goes up there. I never play poker with that guy. So the Fed is tasked with 
restoring calm in the markets, right? If the Fed came out and told the truth about the situation that they're in and how painted into a corner they are, people would panic. And, you know, the Fed is not trying to cause a panic. So, you know, they're playing the hand they're dealt as best they can. The Fed is also kind of left to clean up the mess that fiscal policy has made over the years, right? You've got fiscal and you've got monetary policy and the Fed is being forced to use monetary policy to offset the drunken sailor mentality of fiscal policymakers going back almost 50 years. So I guess they're entitled to a little bit of slack considering the hand that they're dealt. But let's also face facts here. The Fed suddenly decided to sell their stocks back in August of 2021, right? To eliminate the appearance of a conflict of interest. That's what they said. These people are smart enough to know there's no difference than the appearance of a conflict of interest and a conflict of interest. They are one and the same. If it looks like a conflict, it is a conflict. So they had no problems getting wealthy off of their quantitative easing, off of inflating the asset bubble, the everything bubble. And they had no problem selling at the top right before they started sending it down. So, yeah, I'm sure the Fed is aware of this, that the jobs market is not as strong as they're saying it is. But what is the Fed going to do? Come out and tell us the jobs market is weak and we need to crush it anyway? That's not going to go over so well with people. So I, I think they're in an, in an impossible situation. By the way, I'm glad you make that point about um, incentives. It's like I've tweeted that out before. Powell's worth like by some measures, 30 to $50 million. I mean, I'm pretty sure a good amount of that is in risk-on assets. So you had the seventh worst year from a real return basis in the S&P last year. You've had really a bear market that started in February of 2021, which is when small caps started petering out and you started seeing a lot of the speculative stuff peak. Powell's not, you know, everyone's a self-serving animal at the end of the day. Powell also doesn't want to see his own net worth drop. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, yeah, I, I would, I would believe that. Now, Powell's also in a position where he's he's got to solve inflation. Um, and the the truth is, inflation is number one, much higher than they're telling us, and number two, it's falling much faster than they're telling us. And a lot of that boils onto, you know, I'm going to draw heavily on a, an interview series I did with a guy by the name of the Happy Hawaiian, who's pretty active on Fintwit. Back in December, we did an interview series. We, it, it was meant to be a 10-minute interview for my channel. We ended up talking for over an hour, and I broke it up into several pieces. And I called it garbage in, garbage out, about how the data points that are being used as excuses for monetary policy right now are just trash. And if you put in garbage inputs, you're going to get garbage outputs. And the monetary policy we're getting is based on flawed inputs right now. So we're not going to get a good monetary policy out. One of those is the inflation data. You know, I, I talk about on my channel a lot about the CPI. CPI should have been much higher. CPI should have been between 15 and 20% for most of last year. If you actually look at what the cost of living of the average person has, has done over the last year, 
namely owner's equivalent rent, which is this singular data point that makes up 25% of the math that goes into the CPI calculation. They've been telling us that rents on the ground were going up between 5 and 7% through 2022. Well, if you looked at things like Zillow or Redfin, which is a mix of signed rental contracts and asking rents, the rent was actually going up between 20 and 30% in most major cities in the U.S. last year. So there was a massive understatement of inflation last year. And now those rents are actually falling very fast. But because they understated it for so long, the data is still showing the rent rising in the CPI math, even though it's actually much higher than they're telling us, but it's falling much faster. So I think actually this is, this is an important discussion because this does relate obviously directly to housing. And one of the titles on one of those clips, those videos on your channel is real estate didn't crash, it froze. Now what? And I think that's a very appropriate title now, given the way lumber prices have acted. And as much as people keep saying they don't understand my obsession with lumber, it's not just lumber, it's utilities, it's treasuries, it relates to these signals that I'm known for that are well-researched. Lumber's strong and basically telling, telling you that housing starts are about to pick up, which is really interesting because it's a reflationary move in the context of this disinflation uh, that's lagging. Um, what's your take on where we are in the housing market? Um, do you think the bearishness is overdone? And could there actually be a contrarian juncture here where housing could actually lift us out of the bearish mood? I, I don't anticipate housing lifting us out of the bearish mood. Uh, the, the lumber is interesting, and yeah, that could be signaling more supply coming online. Uh, that might actually be kind of the problem. Um, the, the housing market right now is as illiquid as I've ever seen it, right? We, we haven't had a lot of downward movement in prices. We are starting to see downward movement in home prices in a lot of major areas where I think the markets that are still rising are the exception where they were the rule for the last few years. Um, but because of mortgage rates being so high, the sellers are leaving the market as fast as the buyers are. The market's just, that, that's why I say it's frozen. It's illiquid. It's, it's not going down. It's not crashing. It's coming down a little bit, but it's not crashing like a lot of people are saying it is. It's just not moving. There's the number of sales is phenomenally low. I mean, we're already nearly at GFC lows as far as the number of transactions that are happening in housing. But the prices aren't falling because the sellers are leaving. So supply and demand are still relatively in balance. Now, the problem I have is that this jobs market is not as strong as they're telling us. And we're starting to get a lot of anecdotal evidence of job losses, of layoffs. It's starting in big tech, started in banks a while ago. And now we're starting to see things like, you know, Goodyear's laying people off, 3M, uh, what was another, Hasbro's laying people off. So the layoffs aren't just in banks and big tech. Now they're starting to get into like staples and everyday consumer products. Well, when people lose their jobs, the clock is ticking on their house hitting the market. They either find a job fast or they start missing payments and they end up in foreclosure. And if we don't see some kind of a pickup in home buyers and all these layoffs start hitting the housing market, we're going to see an influx of new supply with no demand to compensate for it. And in an illiquid housing market, that means price volatility. That means prices are going to all of a sudden just fall really fast. Right, which, which is a, a, a thesis actually that uh, Melody Wright, who I had on one of these spaces herself, uh, had brought up that you could see this kind of uh, sudden rush of new listings, um, but it could all hit sort of in the, you know, it's called summer fall periods. It, it, it's interesting, right, because there's all these interesting lags that are taking place. So lumber is picking up now because there might be expectations that home builders start getting back to building more. 
Home builder stocks are confirming that, by the way, as we're chatting. But that can also happen at the same time these layoffs occur, in which case now you've got supply from existing homeowners. So that's why I keep going back to I think the path is going to be really intriguing for the stock market here. You could have this optimism continue, this melt-up that I think we're in. But then at some point, you know, down the line, there's a credit event. And that credit event could be maybe from housing, not to the extent of what we saw post-06 into the GFC. But it does seem to me that there is a um, – there's a supply shock risk, you know, that could be quite negative for the housing market. You know, we, we've kind of already seen a little bit of a credit event this year, right? I, I, I view the collapse in the crypto space really as a credit event. Um, now, I mean, you're talking, you have some career dirtbags over there and obviously widespread fraud with FTX, but really what a lot of these platforms falling is, is these, these were all debt markets. They were unregulated debt securities that were flying around with ridiculous rehypothecation and nothing backing them. But really, the collapse in crypto was was a, an unwinding of credit defaults. So we're already seeing the early signs, right? The very, very top of Exter's pyramid is already failing because I would put FTX, BlockFi, all those DeFi platforms all the way at the top of the pyramid, just garbage risk assets. Um, but we haven't really seen that spread into traditional finance yet, but we are seeing things like consumer credit at all-time highs. America's, Americans are not adapting to inflation. They're not lowering their lifestyle. They're putting it on the credit cards. That's only going to work so long, and the banks are already gearing up for that. We're seeing a lot of credit loss provisions in bank earnings. They're all getting ready for people not paying these debts. We're starting to see repossessions on the rise in the auto market. We're seeing a lot of bad debt in the auto market. So Maybe this one doesn't start in housing, which is the lion's share of the debt market. But, you know, I, I do believe we are steaming towards a credit event right now. Yeah, I'm of, I'm of the, the same mindset. I, I keep going back to that line. I keep saying markets are very good at humbling everybody just all at once, uh, just not all at once, right? That it's a different time. So in many ways, you have to humble the overconfident uh, bears here and then do the same thing to the overconfident soon-to-be bulls. <laughs> later, and that's how everybody gets screwed. I mean, markets, I think, are very good at that. Um, for everybody that's here, please make sure you follow uh, Jack Gamble here on Twitter, and of course, check out his YouTube channel, Nobody Special Finance. I will have this as an edited video. If anybody wants to come up, uh, feel free to click that bottom left mic request button. Um, let's talk about some practical ideas, and, and I appreciate you saying uh, you don't consider yourself a great investor, but you're a pretty good one, which is not going to get you too many followers on Twitter. Keeping <laughs> the way that people <laughs> frame things here, but um, but what are you yourself doing? So you know you've got the content. You know the content. You know let's face it, negative content tends to get more algorithmic love. I mean it's just a reality of being a content creator. Nothing nothing to say about that, but just a fact. But when it comes to your own portfolio, what are you doing with all the research you're doing with the content you're putting out? Do you ever finish a video and say to yourself, you know what, I should probably trim something or, or add something? You know, I did most of my trim back in uh, uh, April of last year. Um, I, I got out of stocks in a big way last year. I'm still sitting largely in cash right now. I do have some stock exposure, not very much. I mean, I've been, I've been using a little bit of option trading around energy and, you know, around some of the index funds, but really I've been in a holding pattern for several months now. Um, I'm always nibbling at precious metals and I do buy a little bit of Bitcoin. Um, that's a little more speculative. I know people, people get passionate when you talk about Bitcoin one way or the other. So I try to tiptoe around that one. Uh, but, but for the most part, I'm sitting in cash because, you know, I've noticed inflation hits in a pretty 
steady pattern. It hits asset prices first, asset prices rise, then it hits consumer prices, which is what we saw last year, consumer prices taking off. And then finally, it hits wages. And right now, what the Fed is doing, they're doing everything in their power to make sure people do not get raises. That's their monetary policy right now. They don't come out and say it. Again, they're a political organization. But Jerome Powell is trying to inflict economic hardship on the average person in order to prevent inflation to, you know, what is it, the uh, the Keynesian demand pull inflation. You know, if you actually look at the surface, beneath the surface, real wage growth has been negative for 21 months in a row now, where nominal wage gains have been below even CPI, and CPI is well below the actual rate of inflation. So you know, if you go by standard of living and real wage growth, we are in a deep, deep recession, and we have been for 21 months now. Uh, so I'm waiting for asset price deflation. I, you know, again, the stock market and the economy, you, you say this a lot. They're not one in the same. So yeah, we could have melt ups. We could have big bear market rallies, but overall, I generally don't see multiples expanding at times when earnings are being crushed. And overall, I don't see home prices continuing to rise when most home buyers can't afford to buy that home. So I think we're probably headed for some severe asset price deflation in the coming months. So I'm sitting largely in cash, even though I'm eating the cost of inflation to do that in the meantime. Is it is it sort of like that um, that old joke of, you know, the, the definition of, of profanity? It's like, you know, when you hear it, right? Would you what would be a signal for you to say, OK, now it's time to deploy that cash? Is it as simple as stocks have a 15, 20 percent decline from here or? Uh, credit spreads blow out. I mean, what, what would be some of the things for you personally that would make you get comfortable? Uh, I can tell you I'm, I'm a far long way from comfortable right now. The Fed is still tightening and we don't find bottoms while the Fed is still tightening. Not that I've seen in any of my research. Um, and the last time we were in anything resembling this scenario, the closest I can find to that is 2006, 2007. We didn't really bottom, not in stocks, not in home prices until several years after the Fed pivoted. You know, what will be the actual indicator that that's hard for me to say. What is the one data point I'm looking for? Hey, when I see this, I'm going to pile in. I'm probably not going to pile in. When I see the Fed pivot, I'm going to wait a little while and then I'm going to start nibbling over a course of months and years. It's not going to be a, a pile in when I see this number cross this threshold. And are there are there certain um, secular themes that you think are worth paying attention to? Everyone often talks about energy, commodities, that's the place to be for a multi-year cycle. Um, I, I, by the way, don't disagree necessarily with that, but you know, there's probably going to be a lot of volatility along the way. But are, are, are there certain areas that look more attractive to you from a sector or industry perspective? Yes. Um, I do think that coming out of this, you know, uh, to borrow your words, I do think we're on the brink of a credit event at some point this year. And I think the response to the, that credit event is going to be what the response response has always been, and that's going to be to ease monetary conditions. Um, you know, call me a hopeless romantic. I hope they don't because I don't think easy money and zero interest rate policy has been a good thing for people. But I don't have very much faith that that's what they'll do. I think they are going to they're going to print and they're going to lower. Um, and during that's those are very inflationary policies. And during periods of high inflation, it's back to basics. How are people going to heat and how are people going to eat? Um, so. I like the idea of real estate. Again, not yet, not for a long while. Um, I like the idea of farmland. 
I like the idea of energy stocks, of energy investments. That's that's where I'm looking to deploy that cash. And of course, inflation hedges, gold, silver, Bitcoin are always popular with me. Let's talk about um, gold for a moment here. You, you touched on it a tiny bit. Um, so I always view, I always go back to this point that gold is perhaps the truest diversifier and that it tends to not really correlate to very much, except in short periods of time, you know, benefits from high volatility and equities. Other than that, it's hard to properly model out gold. Um, what would be your thesis for um, precious metals for gold in general? Um, I think we're probably in a multi-year cycle that favors gold. Um, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would agree in a, a multi-year cycle that favors gold. If you go by inflation, gold is a, as an inflation hedge. Well, we had the highest inflation in decades in 2022, and gold pretty much traded sideways for 2022. So the time to get into gold is ahead of the inflation, not during the inflation. During the inflation, gold doesn't do a whole lot, right? The time to buy gold was early 2020, right when the Fed announced that they were going to start the money printing. That's actually one of the reasons why I was able to quit my day job and start doing YouTube full time is because I piled into precious metals and precious metal stocks as soon as I found out the Fed's solution to a virus was to print money. And that did very well for a couple of months, right up through August of 2020. And then to a lesser extent, January of 2021 with the uh, silver squeeze and the gold saw benefit from that as well. So, you know, with gold, it's getting ahead of the inflation, not during the inflation. It's already too late. By then, everybody's buying it. And if you do what everybody's doing, you're not going to outperform. I do see a trend of central banks, namely Eastern central banks, piling into gold right now. I think U.S. foreign policy and European foreign policy has kind of manifested that when we cut the Russians off from SWIFT. I, I, I don't want to you know, trigger anybody's passions here. It's a sensitive subject. But looking at this just pragmatically, when we froze the Russians' reserves in U.S. dollars, we told the Russians and anybody who might be thinking of anything like the Russians that hey, your U.S. dollar reserves are basically subject to the whims of the United States. And if you don't like that, you better put your reserves in something else. And they're buying gold. In a lot of Eastern Central Banks, there is a flow of metal from New York and London over towards Moscow, Shanghai, and you know, also India. And it's not just countries hostile to the United States. Even countries friendly to the United States have started to increase central bank holdings substantially recently. So you know, if if the big buyers are piling into gold, that should tell you something. Yeah, I've observed some of those um, some of those trends too. Let's um let's take a step back uh, for a minute here, and uh, again go back to YouTube and the videos you're doing. Um, I've seen a couple of them candidly or natural in the way that you present things. I'm just curious, what's your own vision? I mean, what what is it ideally you'd like you know uh, you like in, in the next few years to see for your own personal brand for your uh, media? Are you trying to just you know, build out, be a little bit like um, from heresy? I had him on a space before. What, what's your own personal vision? Uh, I think a lot of the problems we're facing economically right now, and to a lesser extent geopolitically, but a lot of it comes down to economic illiteracy. We don't teach it in school. You know, you can be a college graduate. I, I graduated from college with a mechanical engineering degree. I mean, <laughs> I was doing high level differential equations and I didn't know the first thing about finance when I graduated. I mean, I did nothing but math for years and yet they don't teach you anything about finance. 
And, you know, the average person didn't realize they were being robbed when that $600 check showed up in their mailbox in the form of a stimulus. And I think people are starting to now kind of figure out, hey, maybe that wasn't such a good deal for us. And it was the reason they were able to to get away with it, they being policymakers, namely Congress, the reason they were able to steal three or four thousand dollars from either your savings or your future earnings and then give you six hundred dollars back and say you're welcome was because you didn't know any better. You being John Q. Public. I think we have a real lack of financial acumen in this country, in this world. And I think a lot of people who are more than smart enough to know this stuff and understand this stuff. It's really not that complicated. I mean, yeah, there's high level trading strategy and, you know, there's, there's some really complex stuff going on in the finance space, but the basics of it are very simple. And the average person is intelligent enough to understand this stuff. We have convinced them the financial press and the financial services industry has convinced them that they're too stupid to handle their finances and they just need to outsource that to the professionals. And I think Congress and a lot of predatory crony capitalists are taking advantage of that, do things like regulatory capture that are just bankrupting people. And it's the average person that's suffering for it. And I don't think it's a flaw in capitalism. I think it's, we're not dumb. We just don't know anything. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, and I think also the 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 challenge is then you've got avenues like FinTwit, and people see that as an answer or a solution to it. And I'd argue that there's in some ways even more misinformation around what works and what doesn't. So it's hard for people to really not only know better, but even know the right places to go to get better. Yep, absolutely. And if if you don't know which is the right place to go, then the answer is more. All right. Go to two different places. Watch. Listen to somebody who's on one side of the trade and then go find somebody who's on the other side of the trade. Verify what they're telling you. Look at the data they're using to source their opinions and make up your own mind. You know, and, and also, you have to look at the interests and who is telling you, how does that person make their money? Because there are so many people, like especially in the crypto space, every day I get another offer from some ICO or some crypto chop shop wanting me to promote their pump and dump scam. There's so much of that out there. And I know a lot of people take the money because it's tempting to. Uh, so you have to look into how are these people making their money? You know, take take it a, an outfit like Coindesk, which is one of the bigger names in, in crypto media. Coindesk is owned by Digital Currency Group right now. And Digital Currency Group is on the brink of bankruptcy. One of their subsidiaries, Genesis, just filed for bankruptcy. So can you really go by what you're hearing on a on a website like Coindesk if they were to cover something like Genesis or cover something like Digital Currency Group? You have to understand, hey, they're owned by Digital Currency Group. You're not going to get an honest assessment of the situation there. So you have to question what your sources are. How do these people make their money? How do they get paid? Yeah, no, I, I love that. It's, it's not just question what your source are. It's actually go to the source, right? It's, it's, it's both. I mean, 
it goes back to the whole thing I keep saying on Twitter. Amateurs look to the right of the equal sign. Pros look to the left. Looking to the left means going to the source, actually reading the underlying research or material and, and coming up with your own conclusion as to whether what's framed as the right side of the equation is, is accurate. And, you know, case in point, I, we've been told, all of us, is the title of, the, of the, this talk, about the strong jobs market. For years, we've been told about the strong jobs market. Not for a year, for a year and a half. 21 months consecutive negative real wage growth. All right. Wages relative to the cost of goods and services have gone down 21 months in a row, almost two straight years. That is not a market that is short of labor, right? Cost doesn't go down when there's a shortage of something. Real wages are, wages are not rising as fast as inflation. So that tells me we actually have an excess of labor because labor is getting cheaper. It's not getting more expensive. And to quote the happy Hawaiian who came on my channel and we did that interview, he said, if you actually look at the numbers, we have a wage shortage right now, not a labor shortage. So you have to actually go back to the data and you have to question what you're being told and make up your own mind. And, you know, the more I dig into the later numbers, labor numbers, this BLS report that just came out last week that says we're losing jobs, not gaining jobs. If you look at the household survey and not just the establishment survey, yeah, they say we're gaining jobs, but the household survey says people are working more than one job in order to make men ends meet. And most of the jobs we're gaining, we're losing full-time workers and we're gaining part-time workers. That's not a good economic indicator. That's not a strong labor market. That's desperate people trying to make ends meet. And then you go over, you look at some of the debt data. Yeah, that backs up the fact that the labor market isn't that strong. If the labor market was strong, people were making more money. They wouldn't be running up their credit cards to live. So you, you have to pull on the threads. You can't just take what you're told at face value. Given that you're you're not necessarily sort of surrounded by you know others in the in the investment management industry, I, I'm curious. You know your own friends, your own family, your own people that you interact and deal with. Um, do they care about any of this stuff? I mean, and I say that, and I don't, I don't say that. I don't say that in a bad way. I'm just saying, you know, it's like I put that joke out on Instagram. I said, you know unpopular opinion, your neighbor doesn't care what the Fed does this week, right? I mean, what what's sort of the, you know, non-finance uh, field feeling uh, as far as where we are? You know, most of the, most of the, you know, friends, relatives that I talk to, they're not interested in what the Fed is doing or Fed is saying. They're not interested in what are the data. They're, they come up to me and they say, Jack, where should I put my money? And I get so uncomfortable when I get asked that. I never tell people where to put their money. I don't do that. I, I hate being asked for money. I don't ask people for money. I'm a lousy salesman. Um, you know, I just like to consume the economic data and communicate what I'm seeing. And so I, I do my best to be transparent. If I'm talking about something, if, I, if I'm talking about energy, I'll mention, hey, I own shares in Devon Energy. That's the one company that I own. Um, you know, if I'm talking about some other sector, if I don't have any holdings in that sector, I'll say I don't have any. Or if I'm talking about a trend and I, I haven't made any trades, I'll say I haven't made a trade here yet. I, I, I just try to be as upfront as I can. I'm, I'm not interested in pumping stocks. There are people out there who want you to pump stocks for money. I don't do that. Um, I just like telling a story. You know, it, it feels like a big puzzle that I'm, that I'm unwinding. And hopefully people are walking away with my videos, knowing a little bit more and being a little wiser than they went in. That's all. And I, honestly, if I think if I keep doing that, I think the channel will have legs and it will be sustainable long-term. Yeah, and and listen, I know how hard that is. I mean, I'm trying to do it myself, not anywhere near to the level of production on your videos, but you know, you, <laughs> growing on YouTube and Instagram for whatever it's worth is remarkably harder than Twitter uh, from a lot of perspectives. I, I'm curious, do you, do you do your own 
editing with the videos or are you farming that out to somebody? I do. I do my own editing. That's uh, That's been part of the curve. And you, you could probably tell, like, if you go back and watch some of my earlier videos, you know, they're, I, I, I'll say low quality, you know, production value or low production value. Not that I have particularly high production value now. I, I do my own editing. I've been learning how to do it every, just about every video I do, I end up Googling something on, you know, how to do this in Adobe Premiere Pro, which is the software I use. And, you know, I go to YouTube university to learn how to do my video editing. Just like every time something breaks in my house and I got to learn how to fix it, YouTube university, man, that's, that's where I go and learn how to do it. It's amazing what you can learn on there. Yeah. I, I have to, it's, um, as I myself have started to get more involved in the YouTube side, it really is true. 99% of the battle is like the right editing and the right effects and all this stuff just to get the algo to show you some love. Yeah. And it's incredibly time consuming. It really is. And well, the algo hates me because I say bad things about, uh, a certain global economic organization that likes to get together in Switzerland every year. I, I don't say nice things about them. And so the, the YouTube algorithm isn't always, uh, isn't always nice to me, but, uh, <laughs> I, I think they call that the reverse of few, uh, as some people have noted. Yes. To me, but, right, exactly. backwards. That's right, right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So maybe for the final few minutes here, uh, Jack, again, everybody, please make sure you follow Jack Gamble on Twitter and, and show him support on YouTube as well. Um, what do you think people get most wrong about uh, investing, about looking at markets? Um, I can go through a hell of a list uh, just from my own experience. And listen, a lot of people will say, oh, look how you did last year. It's like, okay, you know, you can look at an anomaly or you can look at you know decades of data and then figure out which is more appropriate to focus on. Um, what do you think people get wrong when it comes to this this domain? I think uh, recency bias and complacency are probably two things that come back to haunt a lot of people. It's been this way for the last two or three years, or it's been this way for the last 20 or 30 years. And so it's going to stay this way. You know, I remember, I think it was in 2018. Um, I remember hearing a lot about it and this was before I was really following this stuff that close, but the short vol trade was so fashionable. Everybody was short volatility. Everybody was doing great. They were using these ETN products to go short volatility. And then people just all of a sudden got wiped out by a spike in the VIX. And it was all over the place. Funds blew up. You'd be, be careful of that normalcy bias or that recency bias. You know, Look for the signs. If you're investing in something because, hey, for the last three years, it's done this. And so it's going to do this for the next six months. You better look at some of the accompanying data points and some of the you know leading indicators and say, are you sure it's going to be that way for the next six months? You better verify that because if you wait until it's not, it's too late to get out of that trade. So, you know, again, that's kind of what takes me back to my nuclear roots. That was my job was to figure out this thing is going to break before the thing actually breaks. So it, usually there is a whisper or there is a hiccup in some curve or some deviation of a historical correlation that will tell you ahead of time that this is going to change. You got to go find those. Yeah. I, I, recency bias is by far by far the the biggest problem with fintwit the way that people literally are not just short term but just are extrapolating the last minute to the next hour and the next day it is mind blowing and i think actually very damaging uh, not just in terms of uh, one's portfolio, but in terms of one understanding of how the hell the world works. Yeah. And, and I'd also mention, you know, just recency bias of the people you're getting your information from is also important, right? I get calls wrong. I get calls right. 
Um, if you've got a guy who's been right six months in a row and he says something, don't just follow this guy into a trade. Verify again, what data is he looking for? What supports a challenge his thesis? And I tell my viewers all the time, you see something I'm missing. I want to know about it in the comments. I don't do echo chambers. Echo chambers do their occupants a disservice. So if you see something I'm missing or some data point that, you know, makes you question something I'm putting on my channel, I want to see it. It makes me better. So by all means, challenge me, you know? So that's, uh, that's another thing, you know, just because your guy is saying something, don't just blindly follow him into a trade. Make sure the data your guy is using is accurate and make sure that you're also listening to the guy who disagrees with your guy and then make up your own mind. Right. And I go, I go back to do so in a civil, respectful way, uh, rather than what you often see, which is a bunch of teardown artists by people who uh, are attacking those that don't agree with their own bias or belief. I think that's, that only furthers the echo chambers, right? It's like you can't have, you can't get to the true likely answer because nobody knows the answer except with hindsight, the conclusion, right? But you can't get to the likely answer unless you actually engage in a thoughtful, respectful way with people that might know something that you don't. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this, maybe this is one, another one of the breakdowns of the social fabric in our civilization right now is, is that professional disagreements you know, suddenly makes one person evil and one person good, depending on which side you're on or that, you know, uh, I, I disagree with your call on the direction of this asset class. It, oh, that's a personal attack against me. How could you? No, it's professional disagreement. Get, you know, get over it. Yeah, I don't I don't view challenges to my thesis as personal attacks. Now, you know, and, and I try to I try to mix a little bit of uh, self-deprecating humor into my own channel just to show. And, you know, I, I have it in my name. I don't take myself that seriously. So by all means, feel free to disagree with me. That's not what we do here. But, you know, social media is a tough place. A lot of people hide behind this shield of anonymity and it brings out the worst in people. So, you know, you got to got to realize that's out there, too. Uh, and by the way, for the record, I don't take myself too seriously either because I have freaking lumbering gold eyes, folks. <laughs> on my Twitter picture. So anyway, listen, this is a, a, a great uh, conversation. Everybody, again, please make sure you follow Jack Gamble uh, on Twitter, on YouTube. I'm doing another space, I believe, in an hour. Stay tuned for that. And everybody, enjoy the rest of your day if I don't see you. Thank you, Jack. Really, uh, real pleasure talking to you. Always a pleasure, Mike, for having me on. Thank you, everybody. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.